0: Now, I know that some of you are thinking, now, wait a minute, Skip, you told us last week that you were going to be in India this week. <laughs> and uh, it didn't happen. I got, uh, I got advice from three sources, the, um, the FBI, Franklin Graham, and my mom not to go. <laughs> and so we've taken the week as an opportunity. Wednesday night, call the church to prayer. Some of you were there when Franklin spoke via the phone, as well as Sammy Dagger from Lebanon and news from Jerusalem, and we prayed before and during just the very beginning of it. And tonight, I want to use the opportunity to speak to you tonight and next week, and perhaps the third week, about war and the Bible, war and the Christian. It's a hot topic for obvious reasons. We're in one. So I want you to turn to James chapter 4, we're going to look at that tonight, as well as Isaiah chapter 2. It's been said that the most persistent sound that reverberates through man's history is the beating of war drums. And that beat has become very loud this week as over 250,000 American troops are involved We faced it before, we faced it again, and I'm sorry to tell you, it won't be the last time we face war. There was a young mother who uh, was examining a toy, and she asked the salesman, man, isn't this kind of a complicated thing for a kid? And the salesman said that it was an educational toy designed to help kids live in the modern world. And he explained, no matter how you put it together, it doesn't work. (laughs) And we've sort of come to a time that no matter how we look at our world, our history, mankind, from purely a secular social viewpoint, no matter how we put it together, no matter who negotiates or is trying to call the shots, it just doesn't seem to work, doesn't seem to fit. The answers don't come. Now I, like you, have been glued to the news both on the Internet as well as on television and radio to get the latest updates about our troops and the effort overseas. I read an interesting article on AOL this week that said there's a lot of things that just don't work, don't fit this week. And one of them is the song, Don't Worry, Be Happy. Another is the t-shirt slogan, no fear, because the truth is, the article went on to say, according to a Gallup poll, 70% of Americans are fearful to some degree, even though 79% believe that it will be successful for the United States. We are living in a world of fear, not just about what's going on overseas, but for so many people, especially those who don't know the Bible, their future, the Lord, what could happen stateside in terms of homeland security? According to Dr. Emmanuel Maidenberg from UCLA, the article I read said, we have a good reason for fear. Unpredictability scares people. And so does the feeling that we have no control over the events that affect our lives the message tonight, really, it, it it wasn't by design, obviously, but it fits in this series we've been doing on rediscovering our foundations because last week we looked at the fall, didn't we? And the marring of the image of God. And today, tonight, we look at war. There's a lot of confusion during times like this, a lot of confusion about war. Is it okay to be involved in, even support War, even though the Bible says, God explicitly says, Thou shalt not kill? Does going to war against even an evil regime lower us to their level and make us as bad as they are? Shouldn't we be fighting things like poverty and oppression, what some say are the root causes of war and terrorism? We want to examine those issues, those questions, this week and next week. And I've got to tell you right off the bat, Christians don't agree on this, like in most things, right? They're, they're divided. Some hold the long-standing Christian tradition called the just war tradition, that it is okay and even mandatory to get involved to some degree, uh, a Romans 13, being submissive to the state, and war happens to be a necessity in a fallen, sinful world. Others, on the other hand, take the Gandhi position, really, non-violent protest, um, pacifism, saying that evil deeds should never be met by evil behavior, thinking that war is only and always that. And often this group will quote, even if they're non-Christians, will quote what Jesus said, and we're going to look at that more in depth next week, but he said, You've heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say unto you, Bless those who curse you, Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you. Tonight, I've had you turn to James because I want to look at a few things to open this up tonight and to get us thinking and searching the Scripture and applying it to our lives. The reality, the reasons, and the remedy for war. In James 4... He asks, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure, that war in your members? You lust, you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, The spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. You'll notice something about the first two verses that we just read. The word war and fight appear five times in two verses. There's a reason for that. Uh, War is part of our history. It's a reality. War is a reality. It's as old as we are historically. Even the depictions found in caves often show men fighting one another. So as, as old as recorded history is, in whatever form and fashion, there has always been war. Now, from a biblical viewpoint, this is to be expected, right? If you were with us last week and you buy into the Bible, which most of us do, I hope, we saw that there was a fall, that God's image was marred. And one of the inevitable results of that would be animosity toward one another, warfare. Now, I I want to give you what I think are a good way to sum up all of history. You ready? And I, I, I could take a number of models to do it, but I want to make it as simple as we can for the sake of our study tonight. You could take all of humanity, all of human history, and divide it into four stages, four segments. Number one, creation. That's when everything was perfect. There was harmony, fellowship with God. Life was great. He named animals. It was cool. Didn't last long. Stage two is corruption. The worst tragedy in all of human history happened at the garden, the fall. Paul summed it up in Romans. Sin entered, death entered, death spread, and death reigned because all have sinned. The third stage is redemption. As soon as mankind fell into sin, God went on His plan, His path and predicted a Redeemer, a Deliverer, who would come and crush the dominion of Satan. But there is a fourth, and this is what we are waiting for ultimately. It is the consummation. So creation, corruption, redemption, consummation. This is when Jesus returns to the earth, comes back, and rules over His re-creation. And at that time, that's when Isaiah 2 will be fulfilled. I know this is inscribed on public buildings, but it won't happen until Jesus returns. It says, He will judge between nations and will settle disputes. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn or study war anymore. Well, where are we at? Well, we're kind of stuck between... Stage three and four, between redemption and consummation, I believe we're toward the end of the age. But we're still at the period of time where God is graciously choosing and remaking marred humanity, saving them. According to the Canadian Army Journal, since 3600 B.C., 3.64 billion people have been killed in wars. The same source said the value of property destroyed is equal to a belt of solid gold around the earth that would be 97.2 miles wide and 33 feet thick. It is estimated that in 3,358 years, there have been 227 years of peace. hear that? while there have been 3,300 or 130 years of war. That is 13 years of war to every one year of peace. That translates into 8% of human history only has been times of peace. That's why somebody sort of tongue-in-cheek said, peace is that glorious interlude while men stand around reloading. The first act of war is in the first part of Genesis. You open the Bible, and immediately after the fall, one of the first acts in the first family was murder as Cain rose up to kill his brother Abel. Then you go a few more chapters, and the first time the word war appears in the Bible is Genesis 14, made war. And interesting that the first war was, of course, in the Middle East, as will be the last. It was an alliance of four kings that invaded Israel. And it was so bad because Lot got involved that Abraham took up arms and got involved in the conflict. War is frequent in Israel's history. You can go through the pages, the prophets, the kings, the chronicles, and you find them fighting Canaanites and Amorites and Hittites and Termites and (laughs) Philistines It's through through virtually every period of their history. Israel is involved in war. David had an army comprised solely of infantry. It wasn't until Solomon that a cavalry was inaugurated and chariot troops were trained. Even God is called the Lord of hosts 234 times in the Bible, a name that speaks of the head of an army. It's a military term in the Bible. And then you turn to the New Testament and... There it is again. There's the Roman government, the Roman Empire with its centurions and its incredible Iron Army taking over the entire Mediterranean world and at its height, 150 million people under the control of the armies of Rome. Almost every nation has had civil wars. We've been involved in world wars. We've had cold wars. And now everybody's big worry is the possibility of a nuclear war. Nuclear war. Chemical, biological, yes. But the big fear, if you've studied war at all, is nuclear. That's our past. What about our future? Well, it looks good ultimately, but until that point, it doesn't look all that much better. In fact, war is going to be re- a reality to the very end. Daniel chapter 9, the angel said to him, War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. Jesus said, You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Prophets predict a coming time of tribulation when there will be incredible worldwide warfare such as has never ever been experienced. Daniel 12, There will be a time of distress that has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. And then during that period, the Bible indicates a leader will rise called unaffectionately in the Scripture the beast. And people ask, Who is like the beast? And who is able to make war with him? He's a fighting machine. And this will continue... Until the time Jesus Christ comes from heaven back to the earth, and get this, as He's coming back to the earth to take over, to end all of the wars, this beast with the armies of the earth will try to fight Him. Revelation 19 says, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against Him. So all of that to say, we as human beings seem to have an endless capacity for conflict that has touched virtually every single culture, every one, every one. True story, interesting story, tragic at the same time. There was a couple, they retired And uh, they were so worried about the threat of nuclear war, they decided, now that we're retired, now that we have a few extra bucks, let's find the safest place on earth and we'll retire. So they studied, they traveled, they searched the earth, all of the inhabited globe to find the safest, most secure spot. They thought they found it, paradise. They moved there. Christmas Eve 1981, they sent their pastor a postcard from their new paradise, the Falkland Islands. A few months later, March, a huge conflict broke out between Argentina and Britain. So much for paradise. Paradise found, paradise lost in three months. Now, there have been attempts throughout history to bring a settled, worldwide, concerted peace, even an enforced peace. We don't have to go back uh, uh, well, uh, that far even in our history. The, the Pax Britannica, it was called, the, the British peace sought to enforce and did a pretty good job for almost a century of enforcing a a pretty stable peace worldwide that helped economically. You go back further to the Roman Empire. There was the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. And by their soldiers, by their army, by their presence, by their organization, they rid it. It was their goal to rid pirates from the sea and thieves from the roadways. And they did a pretty good job of it. But the point is... It didn't last. A footnote. If you look here at James, James is not speaking to presidents or prime ministers or kings or united nation groups. He's speaking to a church. So we want to frame that in context. He's writing to a church, a young congregation riddled with conflicts among themselves. Now I want to make this point. When you talk about war and conflict, you don't have to look very far. you just got to look inside us. And all you have to do is look in the church. Because the history of the church isn't all that glorious. We've had our share of fights, haven't we? We've had our share of splits traditionally, haven't we? I've told you before about that church in Scotland that found a, a note after a service in between one of the pew aisles written by one of the saints, obviously the church was riddled with its own conflicts and there was a little poem on it. To dwell above with those we love will certainly be glory, but to live below with those we know, that's another story. (laughs) I even read about a church business meeting that erupted into a brawl, a full-on fight that had to be stopped by local authorities. Why? We're fallen. That's why. Were fallen. Even peace protests need police so that they won't break out into a brawl. So much for peace. And so he is writing to a church, where do wars and fights come from among you? Huh. This is why I roll my eyes whenever I find somebody searching for the perfect church. Like, get over it. And I always like to tell them, if you find one, don't join it. You'll ruin it. Because it's filled with people like us. Well, what is true personally is often true nationally and internationally. That's why I've had you turn here. Look more closely at the passage. Not just the reality of war, but but some of the reasons for it. Uh, You know, as I read this passage, it was a a very uh, obvious truth surfaced. Because he asked the question, where do wars and fights come from? Now he asked it among you. So if this applies to redeemed people, this would certainly apply to those non-redeemed. Where do wars and fights come from? And we find that the root cause isn't because of social or economic circumstances external to man. The problem has to do on the inside of man. And what are the reasons? I'm going to give you three tonight. And I'm painting very broadly, and I'm going to try to sum up. Number one, selfishness. Selfishness. Look at it. He answers the question, Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You see the word desires? It's the Greek word heidone. We get a word from it in English. Hedonism. Hedonism is a philosophy of life that says the chief good, the chief end, the chief purpose of life is personal pleasure. Selfishness is a cause. Now, there's nothing wrong with pleasure, per se, in and of itself. God built pleasure centers in the body. But when pleasure becomes the driving force of our own personal life, we're driven by selfishness then we're living just like unbelievers. Because Ephesians 2 says, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. What marks the last time, said Paul? There will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So, War is simply an extension of man's struggle with sin in a fallen world. Selfishness. Selfishness. Selfishness has been the basis of many a conflict. Can you think of a few? You don't have to look far, once again. Look personally. Think of the last time you had a a fight, a spat, a conflict with your spouse. I bet, at least on one side, if not both sides, the issue was, you didn't please me. You didn't do what I thought you should do. You could turn that ecclesiastically. Why do churches split? Same reason, often it's selfishly. Churches split because we don't like the pastor, we don't like the people, we don't like the policy or policies. You could look at it nationally. Groups split within countries, feel like they need more rights than other people have given them in the past, and they're angry about it, and they split and fight and litigate. And it's true internationally as well. Some of the world's wars in the past have started because of selfishness. Now, here's a classic example. Let's go back to the fourth century BC. Alexander the Great, he was called. So ambitious. And in 334 B.C., he set out to, he made no bones about it. I'm going to conquer the world. He did a pretty good job of it. Interesting, his dad was named Philip of Macedon. He was a warrior, and he looked at his son, who was a bookworm. And he told his son, Alexander, you'll never amount to anything. And he was so worried about his son that he got him a tutor named Aristotle. And when his father died, Alexander took up the cause and spread Grecian culture, his empire, from the Indus River in India all the way down to Egypt and from Greece to Iran. He encompassed the world. In fact, get this, he's 29 years old. He's over in Babylon, Iraq, the Middle East. He falls on a bed at night in his tent and weeps because there's nothing left to conquer. It was his end. Driven, motivated by selfishness. Somebody once said, power is like salt water. The more you drink, the thirstier you get. Napoleon was like that. Columbia Encyclopedia said, Napoleon was driven by ruthless self-aggrandizement. Translation, he was selfish. He was selfish. Maybe we could even look at what happened in 1990 in Kuwait when Iraq invaded Kuwait to get a bigger portion of that Gulf region. Four days later is when Saudi Arabia called on America to intervene militarily, to stop an aggressor. That's one reason, selfishness. The second reason for war is pride. Notice the personal pronouns in verses 1 through 3. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desire for pleasure that were in your members? And by the way, he doesn't mean church members. He means your body members. You lust and do not have. You murder and covet. You cannot obtain. You fight and war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss. That you may spend it on your pleasures. It's riddled with personal pronouns. And notice also the flow of thought. This is staggering to me. James is describing a situation in a church where some people are so driven by pleasure that they are willing to fight and even murder to get something they want. That's pride. And as I read verse 2 especially, there's a guy that comes to my mind. David. This is almost word for word, thought for thought, experience for experience of David's life. He lusted after Bathsheba, was willing to kill Uriah, her husband, in order to get what he wanted. Leaders can sometimes be so concerned with their own control, their own position, and not the people that they are called to serve or the security of the people of that nation. It's all about them and they become entrenched in a position and selfishness and pride are two reasons there are wars. Hitler was like that. He didn't want to be Chancellor of Germany. He wanted to rule Europe. And then Europe wasn't enough. He wanted to rule Russia. And he turned everywhere to get more. There's a third reason selfishness, pride. Here's a third religion. Now, I want you to look at something. In verse, uh, well, verses two through five, he talks, he says, you murder, you covet, you war. And notice this, you ask in the midst of all that you're doing, killing and fighting and jealous and lust, you ask and you don't receive. Question, who are they asking? God. In fact, some of the translations say, you ask God for these things, but you don't get them. Because you ask amiss that you might spend it on your own pleasure. It's interesting that James is here writing to pleasure-driven believers who are expressing their desire for more pleasure in prayer. So there they are, filled with lust and ambition, and they drag God into it. Oh God, you know that I need that brand new Maserati. It's a need, Lord. I need it. So... Wars develop with selfishness, pride, and sometimes a skewed way of thinking that brings God into the picture. Now, we all know, if you've studied history at all, that God is often dragged into military conflicts by any nation. You go back to the Bible, whether it was Babylonians and their god Baal or Marduk or it was uh, Assyrians with... uh, Uh, their false gods, or the Ammonites, or the Philistines with Dagon and others, they often conquered and went to battle in the name of their God, in the name of religion. And i got to tell you that Christendom is not exempt. Christendom, and, and I say the word Christendom, not Christianity, because I think true Christians are often exempt from what is done in the name of Christ in Christendom. But Christendom is riddled with blotches on our history where we fight in the name of religion. Look at Ireland. Think back to the Crusades when church leaders like Pope Leo Fourth and Pope John Eighth said killing unbelievers can be spiritually beneficial for Christian soldiers. For they said their sins can be erased if they killed in defense of the church. When the crusade was first started by Pope Urban back in 1095, the first crusade was sending soldiers over to the Holy Land to rid the Holy Land of infidels, unbelievers. They said, Jews should rightly suffer, for they had slain the just one. And by the way, that's why never sing onward Christian soldiers around Jewish groups. Seriously, all it does is bring back the whole idea of the crusade pogroms. So religion, selfishness, pride, religion, these are often the causes of war. There is a concept that Americans have a tough time getting their minds around, and it's the concept of jihad. Where does it come from? Well, it comes directly from the Quran. There are 109 verses called war verses in the Quran. This is what it means. One out of every 55 verses in that book are considered war verses. One out of 55. It's replete with a call to arms in so many different ways. And, and you may want to read the Quran just to get a taste of that. Um, according to the Quran and the Hadiths, the Hadiths are the um, expostulations, the sayings, the opinions, and interpretations of Muhammad, his thoughts. The Quran and the Hadiths divide all of mankind into two groups. And uh, Muslim commentators call them the house of Islam and the house of war. The house of war. This is what it translates into, according to Don Richardson, who was a missionary in Indonesia for years. He said, Anyone who is not a Muslim is assumed to be rejecting Islam. And rejecting Islam equates to attacking Islam, Muhammad, and even God. That is why a jihad is seen in their minds as self-defense, not an attack. You've attacked because you've rejected the true God, which gives some, in some people's minds, the right to defend by killing. You, you should be uh, uh, apprised of this. Western embassies in Muslim countries flatly tell their people on Friday afternoon, Friday evening, don't go shopping, don't go near mosques. And it's not that the shops are closed or that it's a day of rest. There is no day of rest in Islam. But it's because they know that people leaving the mosque may have just heard a vitriolic sermon and attacked groups of people based on that sermon. In fact, um, a sermon by Osama bin Laden, apparently last month, it was hosted on Al Jazeera Network. He said, quote, Do not fear America and its army. By Allah, we have struck them time and time again and they have been defeated time after time. I don't know when that was, but but it's in the name of Allah. And he cites back to Mogadishu when the helicopter went down and he cites the uh, Marines being killed in Beirut years before. And in summing it up, he says, Praise and thanks be to Allah for that. And he refers to September 11th, quote, On that blessed Tuesday, September 11th, 2001. So, Where do wars and fights come from? Well, they come from selfishness. They can come from pride. They can come from, unfortunately, a skewed view of God, religion. So that's the reality. That's the reasons. Let's at least move toward a remedy, shall we? A remedy for warfare. Is it pacifism? Do we just let evil do its thing and just sit back and even if wicked people oppress even our very loved ones and our children and wives, just say, oh, well, you know, it's sovereignty and it's just that's the way it is. Is it activism? Do we become jihadists ourselves? Do we say, then I'll fight them in the name of my God. and May the best God win. Let's have a battle of gods. I think both of those are wrong. I'm neither a jihadist nor am I a pacifist. I will explain the position, what I think is the Bible's position, next week. Was Solomon right? Solomon wrote these words, To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up, a time to love, a time to hate, a time of war, and a time of peace. We're going to explore those subjects more in depth next time. But tonight I want to close on a a pragmatic note, a practical note. And I want to look at what what would be a remedy in the midst of warfare because, you know, we can talk about it and debate it all day long, but we happen to be in one. So we need to be practical. And I think the remedy is both temporarily and ultimately. Temporarily there's things we can do. Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called sons of God. Now that doesn't preclude war because sometimes peace is enforced by war. But what does that mean? How can we be peacemakers? I'll give you three quick things you can do. Number one, you can pray. And if you were with us Wednesday night, that's what we did. We were devoted to praying for troops, praying for their safety, praying for those left behind, praying for those who are in authority. Pray that these soldiers won't fall to sins and temptations that often befall soldiers on battlefields. And pray. Number two, you can participate. Here's how. Even in our church, we have people whose sons and daughters, husbands, wives, friends, relatives, are fighting the war in the Middle East. What that often means is they're without a man in the house. And when I helped deploy, well, I gave a little prayer and speech to a group of Marines that left when they deployed for the Persian Gulf. They had a whole list of things to do before you leave to make sure that the wife is left especially with ease rather than a complex list. So maybe there's cars to be tuned up, yards to be raked, you want to help ease the stress on the lives of those who have people over in that region in a war. Another way to participate is what we did Wednesday night. We took up an offering for the 250,000 Iraqi refugees already that have gone into Syria. And churches are trying to open their doors and take care of them, but there's, there's no money, there's no food, there's no supplies. We were able to raise about $25,000 Wednesday night to send through Samaritan's Purse to help heal that wound. And that's what you've done on a very practical, practical way. Pray, participate. Number three, preach. You say, oh, Skip, you're such an opportunist. You bet I am. And this is how I figure it. Whenever there's war, people come to church. People get scared. They start thinking about death and heaven and hell, and they should They should. Unfortunately, sometimes it takes a jarring to do so and the war subsides and people go about their secular pagan business often. But it's my prayer that some would be jolted into eternity to make a decision for Christ because really that's where the ultimate ultimate peace takes place temporarily and eternally. I want you to turn to a final passage and we close here. Just just to notice it, Isaiah chapter two, because this is really the remedy for warfare ultimately, ultimately. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways, and we will walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between nations and rebuke many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. You know what that's a picture of? Messiah's worldwide reign that happens to issue forth from the Middle East. You say, oh, the Middle East is the place of war. It's going to be the place of perfect peace one day when Jesus comes. Have you ever wondered what the angel had in his head and his heart when over Bethlehem he said, peace on earth, goodwill toward men? Do you ever stop and look at that and go, say what? What did you say that for? Was that just so we could put it on cards? Were you mocking our future history? Peace on earth, where is the peace on earth? Well, actually, it's an unfortunate translation. A better translation is peace to people in whom God is well pleased or upon whom His favor rests. The ultimate peace treaty was made at the cross when warring mankind at enmity with God because of the fall was brought together with the Father by the pierced bloody hands of a Savior who stood in the gap to atone for sins. There's a book by Don Richardson, I mentioned him a minute ago, called Peace Child. He was in a culture in Irian Jaya, the Sawi tribe, a group of cannibalistic headhunters. I don't know if he wore hats all day long, whatever, but he was living among them trying to figure out a way to get into their culture and he had a tough time doing it because they honored treachery and lying and they saw acts of kindness with suspicion, except one, except one. He discovered these tribes that were warring against each other that if a boy child was given as a gift from one tribe to another tribe, that there would be peace between those tribes as long as that child lived. The name of his book, Peace Child. When he saw and discovered that, he discovered the key to their culture. And he went on to explain that that's the heart of the gospel. God sent his child and gave him for us, to us. And that's how we can know the peace of God, by the Prince of Peace. Oh, listen, he's coming back. There will be peace on earth, guaranteed. There will be perfection, once again, guaranteed. Until then, there will be wars and rumors of wars and desolations until the end are determined. But there can be peace right here. Right here. You can make peace with God by raising the white flag of surrender. That's where it begins. It's not in religion. It's not, well, there's a war. I'm coming to church. No, come to Christ and lay down your arms and surrender your life eternally to Him. Heavenly Father, as we close this evening... We have discussed, though very, very briefly and very on the surface, some very complex issues. But Lord, how grateful we are that we have your take on it. You look beyond economy and poverty and uh, social issues down to the very heart of fallen man and you point to the heart and say, that's where wars come from and that's what needs to be changed. And so Lord no matter what's going on outside these walls tonight, right here, right now, as the Spirit of God is moving, would you rescue people, bring them to a place of peace with God, men and women upon whom your favor rests, people that you're well pleased with, that peace might reign in the heart. I pray, Lord, that we would make peace with you so that we could more easily make peace with one another. As we're praying right now, if you don't personally know the Lord Jesus Christ, If looking around at this fallen world upsets you, disturbs you, causes fear like it does for so many and you want to experience true peace you've got to come to the cross. That's the only place God will negotiate peace is at the cross. And what that means is you are willing to say I'm a sinner and I'm willing to repent of my sins and I'm willing to turn my life over to Jesus and have Him come inside and take control. If you're not sure that you've done that, if you're not sure that you've done that, or if you're sure you haven't done that yet, I offer you and challenge you at the same time to do that tonight. And have the Lord of Peace come in and help make sense out of this world that no matter how well you look at it, it doesn't work. If you want that, if you want to receive Christ, I want you to raise your hand right now. Raise it up in the air. Keep it up so I can see it, and I'll pray for you as we close. Pray for you as we close.